last 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh, mercy. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the Masson newsroom, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you. Thank you so much for tuning in. And, of course, the Masson All Access Podcast is brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. Brendan, how was your 4th of July? Oh, it was wonderful. Went out to visit my brother in Cleveland. Had a grand old time. Wonderful and Cleveland have... Those words been in the same sentence at any point ever? Uh, very minimally, but but sometimes it's there, yes. Gotcha. You you know, another year you could go out and catch a Cleveland Spiders game, perhaps. But uh, uh, Maybe. Yeah. yeah. It's catchy. I like it. Um, thanks for asking me about my fourth, but uh, I'll go ahead and tell you anyway. Uh, oh, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Thank I, you. I went to Crystal City uh, in Virginia, right across from uh, D.C. And actually, Sounds magical. Yeah, they had a, a Marymount Saints, the Marymount Saints of the Marymount Saints. I, I, I didn't know where it was, and I mm. discovered that one of their like lacrosse fields or practice fields is right there in Crystal City. So Interesting. Uh, yeah. You learn something new every day. This is true. You, you learn about the, the sponsors that, uh, that essentially pay your paycheck. That's, you know. That's a nice thing. Yeah. yeah. Only a couple years into the podcast for that, but... Um, <laughs> Well, Brendan, we have some baseball stuff to talk about. We're going to go through the schedule, the Orioles' 60-game schedule. Uh, and then later on in the podcast, we're going to go position by position and look at the potential Orioles opening day starters and how they match up to last year's 2019 Orioles starters from opening day. But first, let's go through the schedule. I don't think in any other year it's relevant to talk about the schedule because in 162 games... Yes, some teams have tougher schedules. Some teams have easier schedules. But it all just kind of balances out when you play that many games. Um, but in this instance, because they're 60 games and because their opponents are super limited, we it, it's worth touching on you know the difficulty of one team's schedule as opposed to another. And I honestly think there might not be a team in the league that has a tougher schedule than the Orioles this year. I mean, you look yeah. at it. 10 games against the Yankees, 10 games against the Red Sox, against the Rays, against the Blue Jays, six games against the defending World Series champion Nationals, four games each against the Marlins and Mets. Those are probably your easiest eight games of the year, discounting the the Blue Jays as well, and then three games against the Phillies and Braves. So you're playing a lot of good teams, and there's not a lot of room for, for any improvement, really, in terms of, you know, Maybe you can make up some ground after playing these tougher teams. There's not enough games to make up that ground. You're kind of in the ringer consistently. Yeah, I mean, the only other teams that I can think of that would have as tough a schedule would be the other teams playing this schedule. So, right. in an instance, like the Blue Jays, but the Orioles, mm-hmm. the Blue Jays had more wins than the Orioles, so technically the Orioles have the tougher schedule in this instance. Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is ridiculous, and, and we can... Uh, you know, I don't want to get too into the weeds about how each team is going to look of those teams in the AL and NL East, but look, the Yankees won 103 games last year. They're going to be just as good, if not better, I think, potentially this year. Right. Um, 
the I th- I think the Rays are going to be just as good, if not better, than they were last year, and they won 90, 90 games last year, I believe. Ninety six. Ninety six. Yep. So and, and uh, Blue Jays, I think, will be better. They're they've got young talent that's on the up. The only team that I see within the AL East dipping is the Red Sox because they got rid of one of the best players in baseball in Mookie Betts. Um, yeah. But but I think that you know three of those teams, two of them in a normal season had the potential to win 100 games and another one had a chance to be a 500 or better team. And then the NL East, yeah, defending world champs in the Nationals. Uh, the Phillies are at least a 500 team, I think, with Bryce Harper. Uh, and then, you know, the Marlin, uh, the Marlins are the Marlins, but, you know, the, the Mets are going to be, they were above 500 last year. I think they won 84 games. So it's daunting. It's incredibly daunting. And then the Braves, uh, you know, who didn't even make it out of the divisional round, uh, but were one of the best teams in baseball last year. It, it is utterly ridiculous to think about the kind of uphill, uphill task that the Orioles face here. And if you look at the records against these teams, out of the ones that they actually played, the Orioles didn't play games against the Mets, the Marlins, the Braves, or the Phillies. The best record against one of these teams was two and two against the Nationals. And I think that's kind of, you know, a rivalry game and and anything can kind of happen in those situations. But the Orioles last year go two and seventeen against the Yankees, go seven and twelve against the Rays, go seven and twelve against the Red Sox. I think that record has a chance to go closer to maybe five hundred. But even then, I think seven and twelve was a good record against the Sox last year. And then eight and eleven against Toronto. But like you said, I think the Blue Jays have a lot of young talent, and I think that team's going to improve. So there's, like I said, there's not a lot of leeway against these teams, and I don't suspect that the Orioles are going to split with the Nationals. So out of those teams, I'm not seeing a record that could be above 500, maybe close there, but it's yeah. it's hard to say. Did you say that? What did you say that Orioles' record against the Yankees was last year? Two and seventeen. That seems ridiculous. Um, how many home runs did Gleyber Torres hit against the? the I'm so oh. glad you asked. Gleyber Torres uh, turned into the greatest baseball player of all time against the Orioles last year. In case you forgot, uh, he hit 394 with 13 home runs and 17 extra base hits in 18 games. So, for 10 games, what is that looking like? I think that's about a million home <laughs> runs, if my math is correct. I think he hits about 612. Uh, right. Yeah. He was he he he. I think he single handedly took years off Gary Thorne's life last year. I think um, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean that that's just going to be brutal. Um, I, I I dug similar to you. I dug into some of the stats behind that. Forty six games of this sixty game schedule. Forty six of them are against teams that were five hundred or better in twenty nineteen. Twenty nine games, so a little less than half, were against uh, are against teams that had at least ninety wins in twenty nineteen. Uh, 23 games uh, are against teams that had at least 96 wins in 2019. Uh, 10 games, of course, against the Yankees and six games against the defending champs. So just a, a ridiculously uphill battle. So I think there are there are going to be surprise teams in baseball uh, that you know none of us predicted before the season were going to make the playoffs just because of the, the weird, wacky schedule. It's just given the difficulty of the O schedule, I, I, it's just so difficult to see them them kind of forging a path through this. And Baltimore is going to have to really, really take advantage of those games when you're not playing the Yankees or the defending world champions. You've got to take advantage of playing 
even the teams that are still good, but a little bit weaker in comparison to the rest of your schedule. Teams like the Red Sox, the Blue Jays, the Mets, and the Marlins, those are going to be the games that you've got to take advantage of. And, you you know, you're not going to pick up a lot of wins more than likely against a team like the Yankees, probably the Rays as well, and the Nationals. So you've really got to hone in on those games against some of the weaker teams if you're going to pick up some wins. Exactly. All right, Brendan, let's go through position by position and look at this this uh, current Orioles roster. We don't know, obviously, yet the opening day roster. We know the Orioles will open the season in Fenway on July 24th for a 7.30 start time. Um, but we don't know yet who's going to make that roster and who are going to be the starters at this point. Still a couple weeks out, but we can kind of guess um, and, you know, subject to some change at some point. And then I think we should look back at last year's team and um, the the opening day roster of that team. And there are some exceptions I'm going to make because of some injuries and some changes, but essentially looking at is this team now as good as, worse, or better than the team we saw on the field last year in 2019. So let's start with the uh, the Orioles' 2019 rotation. Remember, Alex Cobb was supposed to be their opening day starter before he got injured. Uh, but beyond Cobb, you had Kashner, Andrew Kashner, who, of course, was dealt to the Red Sox. Uh, you have John Means, who was not a starter in that initial starting five to start the season. But I'm kind of throwing him in there because it, it only took about a week and a half uh, for him to be added to that opening day or, or to the to the starting rotation. So I'm throwing him in there. Then, of course, he had Dylan Bundy. And remember, David Hess was a starter for essentially the first two months of the season. And aside from that glorious start against the Blue Jays in Toronto, he, he struggled. So you have those five guys, Cobb, Kashner, Means, Bundy, and Hess. And then the, the 2020 uh, Orioles rotation, which you can kind of – parse out at this point we've done it in the in previous podcasts John Means going to be your opening day starter in all likelihood Alex Cobb if he's fully healthy Asher Wojciechowski Wade LeBlanc and then let's throw Cole Stewart in there so given those five guys from 2019 the five guys from 2020 Brendan who do you give the edge to I think I probably give the edge to the 2019 rotation if you're looking at the pitchers who have changed, you're going from 2019 of Andrew Kashner, Dylan Bundy, and David Hess to 2020. Now you've got Wojciechowski, Wade LeBlanc, and then you can throw in pretty much anybody for that fifth starter, whether it's Tommy Malone or Cole Stewart, like you said. And I think those guys last year just gave you more potential. I mean, Kashner pitched well enough to be a deadline deal. He got traded to the Red Sox and had a good start to his season. And Dylan Bundy, even though his ERA was not fantastic, he still had some solid games here and there. He had 11 games of at least seven strikeouts. And I don't think you're going to get that kind of production from the back end of your rotation this year. I know Asher Wojciechowski is solid, and I think he will be solid this year. But looking at kind of those three, four, five guys, the ones who are really changing from last year, I would give a slight edge to the 2019 rotation. But who knows? I mean, if, yeah. if Alex Cobb comes back and has a solid season in 2020, stays healthy, then maybe I give the edge to 2020. But as things stand right now, just the changes from last year, I think I'm leaning 2019. And of course, that that is the ultimate question mark and, and has been throughout Alex Cobb's entire, entire career, and especially his Orioles career, is is just can he be healthy? And, and if he is, if he's healthy and if he's right, he provides a big boost to your rotation. But if he's not healthy or if he's trying to pitch through injury like we saw through the first couple months of the season last year, 
it's a huge detriment. Um, you'd almost rather not have him, you know, uh, right. starting every fifth day. But, you know, it, it is funny because I was thinking when during this offseason, I was looking at the five guys that the Orioles had lined up for that rotation. I was thinking this this rotation is a lot better than the one we saw last year. Um, but then I kind of looked at it and I was like, well, Andrew, you know, I was thinking of the rotation by the end of the year. The rotation that we saw, the Orioles rotation we saw by the end of the year was probably worse than the rotation we saw at the beginning of the year just because right. um, you no longer had Kashner, who got out to such a great start um, and, and boosted his trade value. Um, you know, Bundy had kind of fallen off by that point. And then you had, uh, you know, because of Alex Cobb's injury, you had just guys thrown out there that um, would not be getting starts in any in any other on any other team, pretty much. So, right. um, but given the, you know, the opening day roster from last year, yeah, I think I think the, the, these two opening day starting rotations line up pretty well um, in in terms of talent level. Um, they're they're about the same level. And uh, and last year, I remember thinking having higher expectations for David Hess than the the kind of expectations that we had by the end of the year. So, uh, yeah, I, I, it's kind of sad, but yeah, I would I would honestly give a slight edge to the twenty nineteen rotation as opposed to the twenty twenty. Uh, rotation. All right, uh, let's go through the infield. Brendan, what'd you have for the uh, 2019? You dug dug deep a whole year ago, the opening day infield for the Baltimore Orioles in 2019. Well, first, uh, the big change, I think, probably starts with second base. Last year, the 2019 starter was Jonathan VR, and he was incredibly productive. Played yeah. 162 games, hit 275, 24 home runs, 75 RBIs, and stole 40 bases. And I think naturally you're probably going to think that that's a big downgrade to Hanser Alberto. I don't think it's as big of a downgrade as it might seem. Right. Alberto was one of the best hitters in the league against lefties. Some might argue one, if not the best hitter against lefties in the league, hit 398, had 22 more hits against left-handed pitchers than any other hitter in the league. And he might be your leadoff hitter this year. And last year he hit 349 in his 46 starts at the leadoff spot. So I think if Alberto is able to keep up the average that he did last year, he hit 305. Like I said, he was fantastic against lefties, still had 12 home runs, 50 RBIs. He's giving you that production, 160 hits in 139 games. You'll take that. So if he's able to keep up that average, I don't think it's as big of a downgrade as some people might think. I think it's still a slight downgrade because we haven't seen what Alberto is able to do as a full-time starter. And VR was just so productive last year. But I think it's a slight downgrade, but maybe not a massive one. Yeah, I mean, last year, Alberto did get to start just kind of all over the diamond. You know, it right. was, uh, he was used in the outfield, which he had really never been used there ever before. Uh, at some times, but he he did not even it was not even an open day, opening day starter, but it took just uh, several a couple of weeks for him to kind of work his way into that rotation. But they threw him everywhere. I mean, remember he started games at third base, he started uh, second base, of course. He was a DH at times, so he got he got regular at bats. It's just him settling into a position now, um, which might help there. Um, so yeah, I think I think there might be a slight downgrade just because you you lose VR's bat. I mean, you know, e even though you had Alberto's bat staying consistent from last year to this year, VR just 162 games was incredibly productive. Uh, you know, probably the most offensively, the best offensive 
player for you last year with the exception of Trey Mancini. So, right. um, yeah, that, that definitely hurts. Other than that, though, I do think you get an upgrade in Jose Iglesias, uh, certainly defensively, because Richie mm-hmm. Martin, I think, uh, showed flashes at shortstop, but his defensive metrics were not great by just about any stretch. The, the team was kind of bullish on what they saw from him defensively, um, but the metrics weren't there. And then offensively, he just did not produce. Uh, he was not major league ready from an offensive standpoint. And again, tough situation for Richie Martin going from double A uh, straight up to the big leagues and then having to be your everyday shortstop. Uh, but he certainly struggled offensively. And Jose Iglesias is, is not by any stretch a great offensive talent. Um, but if he hits in the 240s and if he gets you maybe 10 or so home runs, that's way better offensive production than we ever got from Richie Martin last year. And you're probably not going to get that power from Jose Iglesias, but at the very least last year, he was a really solid contact bat. Mm -hmm. From Richie Martin, you go from a 208 average and 59 hits in 120 games to Jose Iglesias, who last year hit 288 with 145 hits in 146 games. So that's that's a really big improvement. He also had 11 home runs, which... Again, you're not really looking for the power from Jose Iglesias. You're looking for the contact bat, and you're looking for the defense. Richie Martin, like you said, was negative on pretty much every defensive metric, and you don't want to be negative on defensive metrics. And Jose Iglesias was positive on all those defensive metrics. So not only are you getting an upgrade on the offensive side, you're getting an upgrade on the defensive side. So I think maybe more than anywhere, this is probably the biggest improvement of any position. Yeah. Um, and then other positions staying stagnant. Chris Davis, um, pretty much going to be. Which could be an improvement. Could be, could be an improvement just on yeah. internal improvement, we hope. Um, you know, I think it, in terms of internal pr- improvement, any one of these guys, you know, we're not going to get the exact same production that we got from 2019. We could get more or less, but it's just kind of, um, you know, a baseline and just kind of on paper what we're looking at. Uh, and then other than that, you know, Rio Ruiz projected to be your third baseman. Again, could be internal pr- improvement, but same player on paper. Uh, and then Renato Nunez is going to stay as your DH. Um, and, you know, he was a great power bat in your lineup last year. So those are all the same. And then the only other position uh, that could be a big change is going from Jesus Sucre as your opening day catcher now to a combination of Pedro Severino and Chance Sisko with a, a, a small chance that Brian Holiday could work his way into the mix. I mean, I don't think, I think the team had much higher expectations for Jesus Sucre than what they got last year, but he was not good. Uh, did not last for very long. So I, I think that that is probably improve, an improvement if you get uh, just, you know, slightly below average production from a, a Severino, a... Uh, maybe an Austin wins and a chance Cisco there. Well, Jesus Sucre, the thing with that too, he's an older veteran. So you're expecting at least a little bit of production. Whereas with a guy like chance Cisco, he's still only 25 years old, even though he didn't have the best production last year, you could still see that potential, maybe move him up and be a little bit closer to, to an average catcher there. So, you know, you didn't get anything from Jesus Sucre and even having the potential of chance Cisco I think is an upgrade. Yeah, so I think you're better at catcher slightly. Uh, I think you are slightly worse at second base, even though mm-hmm. you know Alberto's still good. It's still it, any it, just the fact that you're losing VR's bat um, is right. going to hurt. And then, but then you do get an upgrade in Jose Iglesias. So overall, 
I think you have a slight positive upgrade in terms of talent in the infield, including catcher there. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think Jose Iglesias is a bigger improvement than Hanser Alberto is a detriment. Yeah, okay. So I, I think that outweighs it. Gotcha. Uh, all right, let's move on to the outfield here. You might forget that Cedric Mullins was the opening day center fielder in 2019. Of course, did not last very long in the big leagues before he was sent down to AAA. Uh, Dwight Smith Jr. was your pretty much your everyday starter in left field, and then you had Trey Mancini switching between DH, first base, and right field. Then you look at this projected opening day outfield, and you've got Anthony Santander, you got Austin Hayes in center, and then let's throw DJ Stewart in there as well. You lose Trey Mancini's production. That is a hundred percent a detriment. No matter who replaces him, is is not going to give Trey Mancini's level of production offensively. But I think Hayes is a definite upgrade over Cedric Mullins. Um, so I think that that it, this kind of is another one where it's kind of balanced out here. Yeah, you. I think left field is pretty much a wash. You had, saw a lot of Santander last year. You're going to see a lot of Santander this year. It might be some, you know, Dwight Smith Jr thrown in there. Austin Hayes in center is is definitely an improvement over Cedric Mullins having a full year of Hayes. He's clearly the Orioles center fielder of the future, played great defense, had really good production offensively. But like you said, right field, it's a downgrade any way you put it. I mean, even if Ryan Mountcastle comes up and lights the world on fire, he's going to have to be unbelievable to get close to the production that you got from Trey Mancini. So I think pretty much any way you spin it, I think it's an overall downgrade in the outfield. Yeah. Slight. Just, be, just because of the right field. Yeah, exactly. Anytime you lose, I mean, the Orioles really lost, you know, one by trade and one just by awful circumstance, lost their two best bats from 2019 um, going right. into 2020. You just, you, you can't ignore that. So I think that's uh, agreed, a slight downgrade in terms of the outfield. Then last but not least, the bullpen, uh, which, I mean, it's impossible to kind of predict who's gonna all going to, pitch at some point in the bullpen it was a ridiculously long list of guys that ended up pitching for the Orioles last year out of the bullpen and they tried everything to try to find some regular contributors pretty much the only regular the 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 guys that had good years coming out of that bullpen last year Hunter Harvey and you know Michael Givens was fine but not up to his level of production so I mean that that was pretty much end of list right there they they really struggled in terms of bullpen and coming into this year you have the added benefit of having Hunter Harvey um, assuming he's healthy you have him you know for a full 60 game stretch as opposed to just the last month of the season Um, but then the other kind of names I think you can just kind of swap them out and there's we we can't really determine who's going to be an upgrade and who's not until we see these guys pitch in actual games. Well, I think the bullpen might be a slight improvement for the reasons you mentioned. I think Michael Givens didn't have the year he wanted to have last year, and I think maybe we see a return to form for him, and then a full year of Hunter Harvey. And if if those two are the two improvements you have, I think it's an improved bullpen from last year. But it's so hard to say. Like you said, I think there's going to be a lot of guys moving throughout there. I wouldn't be surprised if some guys get called up and maybe see some bullpen work. So it's really hard to tell. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, in terms of the bullpen regular contributors and opening day starters uh, at, coming out of that bullpen last year, you had Richard Blyer, um, you had Miguel Castro, you had Paul Fry, you had Michael Givens, you had Pedro Araujo, you had Mike Wright, and you had Jimmy Yacobonis. Wright, Araujo, and Yacobonis are all gone, and you pretty much swapped them with Hunter Harvey, so that's an upgrade. 
Uh, you have I, I I'm just guessing as to who you might make have make the opening day roster. Uh, this guy Travis Lakins, who came over from the Boston Red Sox, and then Cody Carroll, who missed all of last year uh, with injury, and and now is working his way back. But you don't know what you're going to get from him. And two years ago, he had like a nine ERA. So I, I think Hunter Harvey is the only definitive upgrade here. Um, and hopefully you get some internal improvement from the guys in, in terms of Blyer and Givens, uh, just because we've seen better years from them. So overall, Brendan, you look at this road, this entire opening day, potential theoretical opening day roster. Do you think it's better, worse, or the same as last year's opening day roster? Unfortunately, I, I think I'm going to go with worse. I mean, like you said, you lose Trey Mancini, you lose Jonathan VR. Those are your two most productive offensive players last year. And I think the only big upgrade that you have, I think there's two upgrades. I think Jose Iglesias at shortstop is a big upgrade. And then you've got a full season of Austin Hayes in center field. Yeah. Those are your two big upgrades. And I just don't know if those upgrades outweigh how much value you're going to be losing with Jonathan VR and Trey Mancini. Yeah. And I think I think for that reason alone, I think the lineup is slightly worse. And and like I said, I think I would lean the 2019 rotation over the 2020 rotation. So I think we're looking at a slightly worse opening day 2020 roster than we were in 2019. I would agree. Obviously, there's a chance for internal improvement, and I think it, it's gonna hinge whether this team improves or not, is gonna hinge on a few things. I think it's gonna hinge on um, whether or not we see Ryan Mountcastle come up and be productive, I think he could have a huge, uh, he, he could provide a huge boost to this offense if he is healthy and if he is on this roster to start the season. Right. Um, Alex Cobb being healthy, obviously, if he is fully healthy and if he was the Alex Cobb that they signed several years ago, then that is a huge boost in that rotation. Um, and then. Other than that, I mean, it's just which one of these other guys can step up. Are, are they going to get another, um, you know, type John Means type 2019 year from somebody that none of us were expecting and steps up all of a sudden and is great. And then the last one is, of course, Chris Davis. If Is if he is anywhere close to the, the Chris Davis, the all-star level Chris Davis that we saw of years past, that is a way, way bigger improvement um, and could help, honestly, make up for some of that offensive uh talent loss that you have in losing VR and Mancini. So it's going to swing on a, a few factors here, but overall it is, I agree, it is it is roughly the same, if not a slightly worse team on paper right now than it was last year. And if it weren't for Mancini being out as well, I think I might be leaning slightly in the other direction. I yeah. think you just can't undervalue how much value he had in that lineup and in the clubhouse as well. I mean, he's he's clearly one of the leaders on the team and he's going to be sorely missed this season. And so if he is healthy and with that team this year, I think I'm probably leaning slightly better, but just because he's missing, I think I'm leaning the other way. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Brendan, thanks so much for, uh, for hopping on the mass and all access podcast this week, next week. I think we should do some over under some season predictions as we inch closer to the regular season. So uh, thanks for hopping on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Now we're joined on the Masson All Access podcast by Orioles broadcaster Melanie Newman, who joins us via Zoom. Melanie, thanks so much for hopping on here. It's good to actually connect to finally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have cross paths on social media, and that's just about it. I've been watching your show, The Grind, so I 
had to get a, a cup of coffee. It's like crappy office coffee at this point, but uh, <laughs> just in honor of having you on here because you've been hosting that awesome show, The Grind with the Orioles. How has that experience been? You, you jump into the Orioles organization as a broadcaster and then things shut down all of a sudden in mid-March and you found a way to connect to, with players and fans during this time through The Grind. It's uh, it's been the weirdest year of my life, and I don't feel like that's an understatement at this point. But uh, I, I feel really lucky when we first got on the phone with the content crew and started saying, you know, what do we what do we want to create during this time of not having live games? Where do we want to go with it? Um, that's kind of always been my niche within the sport is going into the human side of it. You know, bringing an element that fans can actually relate to because they they can't relate to throwing a hundred or, you know, being able to hit bombs off of some of the best in the biz, but they know what it's like to be suddenly stuck at home with a three-year-old and, and, you know, learning the ins and outs of life together and on top of each other. Um, so, and I just told them, you know, let's, let's go into their homes and, and it's not a structured thing. It's just wherever the conversation wants to take us and, and let's talk about life. And then I felt like, I hit the jackpot with it because people who've known me for years know I have a coffee addiction. Like it's a big problem. <laughs> um, so they came back and said, you know, we, we played around maybe over cocktails, like doing a segment like that. But what if we did it mid morning? Um, Cause there's nothing really going on at that time. And we made it, you know, a little sit down with coffee. And I was like, I'm sold. Like this is, this is catered around everything I could possibly dream of in a show. Um, and thus it launched. And it's been an awesome opportunity for me be just we got such a small taste of spring training and to jump into an entirely new organization off the bat and, and not even looking at, you know, the black and white numbers of it all, but knowing who these guys are and having them trust me, you know, that we're going to be around each other for 162 games yeah. prior to all of this, uh, that, you know, they're now still open to, to letting me come into their homes and getting to know them on a more personal level, which I, I just think is more authentic in the first place. Uh, so I'm, I'm really fortunate. And so far the guys seem to have had fun with it too. Absolutely. And you guys have already built quite a following in just the few months that this show has been on the air and on Instagram live. It's been awesome to, to watch from afar. And you, you mentioned jumping right into the Orioles organization as a broadcaster. You did know somebody jumping in with you in Jeff Arnold, who was already in the Orioles organization, but down in high a with the Frederick keys. You also got the call up from high a did it help to, to know Jeff and, and what can Orioles fans expect to hear from him? We got a little taste of both of you guys on the airwaves back in spring training, but what kind of broadcast styles are you guys bringing to the table here? Jeff is one of the most dedicated professionals I may have ever met. I mean, his prep work, I even had to check with someone because I was like, am I, am I not doing enough? And they're like, no, 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 you're good. Jeff is just that <laughs> thorough. But I mean, it speaks to the fact that when they brought him on, he, he became the man. I mean, he has most of the games for the radio call for the Orioles and he's certainly deserving of it, but uh, joining the Carolina league last year for the first time and it being very quickly, I mean, that hire was made in spring training for me, Jeff was that first ally. And that was, you know, one of those great moments that happened because we had a bunch of mutual friends also in the industry. Um, but we got along very well and very quickly. He became my peer who would sit down when we played each other. And God knows Salem and Frederick played each other more than anybody else. It felt like <laughs> last year, but we'd go over my work together. And so it became a partnership where we understood each other's communication styles. And from there, uh, he had a number two and, and I only had a number two on, you know, maybe 20, 30 games. 
So he would leave him alone for a little bit and jump in the booth with me. So we already had that on-air rapport and understanding of each other's flow going into it. And where he's very good with the storytelling and carrying the game, he knows you know, that my storytelling kind of happens off the field during the game. And so knowing how to control that direction and where the other one kind of wants to take a certain day, uh, it just, you know, it cuts down on so much of the prep work of that initial, all right, we've got to get to know each other's personality and is there chemistry there? Uh, we're, we're pretty ready to go at this point. And he's, he's loved being a member of the Orioles organization for so long. And I think it's cool for him because now, most of the guys on this roster that we're looking at are all guys who came through Frederick in the time that he was there. Um, and you know, anytime something happens, he's like, Oh yeah, I was texting so-and-so. I'm like, that's nice. Like nice. <laughs> You're cheating at this point, Jeff, yeah. but he's, he's been great with it. Awesome. And, and you mentioned, you know, working with him in a play-by-play fashion. You've also done sidelines with numerous different sports uh, on a college level, which aspect of broadcasting do you enjoy the most is it play-by-play is it sideline or are there just kind of different things uh and different aspects to the the different types of jobs that you enjoy separately honestly i i never thought about even having play-by-play because at the time when i was in school you know you didn't look at a lot of women doing it it's not that i felt that i didn't belong there it just the thought never entered my head yeah um i feel really fortunate that i had a partner in mobile with justin baker he'd known me for a decade and he kind of saw i had the ability whether i saw it or not said no you're you're gonna come in the booth Um, and then learning to keep your identity and, and to find those things that make you different. Um, cause you know, not everybody wants to hear the same 30 broadcasters across the board. Everybody has a little something else. Yeah. Uh, and that was when I realized that I could kind of blend the two. I could take the work that I'd been doing on the sidelines and take that approach and still bring it up in the booth and have that place. Um, and it's created a really cool yin and yang effect. Both have their, their challenges and, you know, obviously the nice things I like, I love the air conditioning of being in the booth. Um, you know, it beats when I'm sweating to death down in the dugout, but at the same time, getting to be that close to it and, you know, hearing the little things that are going on that no one else is picking up on and, and, you know, kind of getting to have a conversation on the side during stuff. It's, it's a huge privilege and responsibility as well. So I can't pick between the two, um, which I try not to sit on the fence about a lot of stuff, but they just, they have so many unique opportunities. And that's where I feel so lucky that uh, Baltimore is the first organization I've ever worked with everybody told me, you know, you're going to have to choose at some point. It's, yeah. it's going to be one or the other. And they were like, well, how about both? Um, and, you know, it's, it's a no-brainer from that point. Yeah. I mean, hey, if, if players can play different positions, if we can see Stevie Wilkerson pitching out there, then we can have versatility in broadcasters too, I think. So that's certainly something that is, <laughs> is continued through the organization. But let's talk about the on-the-field stuff uh, and summer camp. Because we've seen already the first intra-squad game last night at Oriole Park at Camden Yards with some ghost outfielders. Just certainly a strange atmosphere down at the ballpark. But we're getting baseball in whatever format that we're getting it, and we're happy to get it. What are you looking forward to over the next couple of weeks of summer camp as the Orioles get ready for opening day up in Fenway? Honestly, just being able to get back in the park is is what I'm most excited about. And we've already had the discussion, you know, as broadcasters right now, um, there's not a physical need for us to be at the park. That's extra work on everybody else to keep everybody safe. But it's cool um, that Zoom has kind of become this bulldog. I don't even know if they're publicly owned, but like if you had stock in Zoom before <laughs> yeah. COVID happened, like you're, you're rolling set in for it. life. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so we've, we've been able to, you know, you catch the interviews and, and watching as much as I can and the photos that everybody's tweeting out, reading the recaps and seeing the videos. It's, it's been, like you said, it's weird. Like you see the one man in center field and a ball definitely is fair. And I got an out. Um, <laughs> but, but just being able to step back into it and, and to actually go into a major league park for the first time, uh, that that's really everything that it comes down to. I even, I think I even got more excited today seeing the 2021 schedule. Cause I was like, maybe normalcy, like maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think not that we took our jobs for granted by any means, but we never thought that baseball would not exist. And now that we've had this couple months without it, um, getting to see it, even in its weird form is just, I'm, I'm dying to, to be able to finally put my eyes on the actual product. Yeah. Well, I asked Kevin Brown this last week on the podcast, but got to ask you too, let's assume that you're in an empty ballpark and we all know that at Camden Yards, the press box is very close to the field. We saw in the empty stadium game several years ago that Gary Thorne's calls were kind of echoing around the ballpark to the point where some of the players could hear them. Are you prepared to be calling a game doing play-by-play? I guess you're used to it maybe uh, being in the dugout, but are you prepared (laughs) to have players hear you call the game while it's happening? I don't know about the live aspect of them hearing it. I will say my guys last year had had no shame. Um, you know, they they knew right where they stood with me, but they'd hop on the bus after a game and be like, my parents sent me this call or like, I'd already heard this. They'll be re- And I'm like, can we not? Because I don't know if you feel the same way, but for me, the thing I hate most is like hearing my own voice. Like yes. I don't, I don't want to do it. I hate it. Yep. Um, and they would bring up stuff on purpose. And it's like you said, being in the dugout, I got really used to, especially, um, with Fox sports back in Frisco, we were in the visitors dugout. So if I wanted to say anything, I'm right next to a team that doesn't know me versus my team who would give me a little, so I'm like turning, like yeah. trying to hide and, and, you know, not make it so loud, but eventually you just, you get used to it and you own it. Um, I can't guarantee it won't produce a laugh or two on air. Like if we, if we see a reaction of them hearing a call, but you know, at, at this point, let it fly. It, yeah. it is what it is. Exactly. It's, it's a strange circumstance. I think all I, I've said this to people when they ask about this, the weird circumstances with the season, people get it. People understand because they're going through similar weird situations themselves. So uh, it, it's all understandable, but what are you, what are you looking forward to, and, and what do you think the team is looking forward to here in, in terms of 2020 and the team goals? 60 games, given a, a, an incredibly difficult schedule in the AL and NL East, but anything can happen in 60 games. We heard what Brandon Hyde said about uh, you know we want to win every game possible while also developing these guys and keeping a long term goal, but. What do you think fans should be rooting for in this type of season? Should they be hoping for a playoff spot or should they could just kind of throw out the idea of that or or where should they what kind of goals should they have for the their Orioles team this year? Well, I, I can say talking to the guys, especially once they found out, you know, that there would be a season, um, the responses have all been pretty much on par without being rehearsed. It's their personal reflection, but they all want to develop. Um, so they're kind of looking at, you know, this might be the year that they tinker around with stuff with a certain, you know, whether it's their form at the plate or it's working on a type of pitch, uh, it's, it's 60 games. And I think they're, they're a little realistic about where they're still at this year. You know, they didn't all of a sudden supercharge into the team that we're looking at for 22 or 23. Um, but at the same time, they're so young 
and you can just see that youthful joy and energy. And they're like, dude, we're, we're going to the wall this year. Like we're, <laughs> we're going to let it all out. We're, we're putting the hammer down. Like, why not? Let's just see what happens. Um, and I think Austin Hayes just summed it up best yesterday. He's like, dude, we're, we're going to shock the world. Cause even if we fall short, it's 60 games. You know, if you go for that shock, the world momentum in 162, you're going to be burnt out and it's going to be 10 times more depressing, but it's 60. So even if you, if you go all out and it's not enough, you know, you're, you're not dead on the floor. At least you're, yeah. you're looking back and you're like, well, that was fun. Like, Hey, remember that one time we did a suicide squeeze three times in a row? Like what a game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's scary to think about considering how many leaping and diving and running into wall catches Austin Hayes made last year. To think that he wasn't even giving 100% in terms of throwing his body on the line and he could be giving 110%. That's, uh, I would worry a little bit about uh, just his, his, you know, health at this point. But I'm sure he'll take care of himself. But it's exciting, uh, certainly, to know that that they're going to be going all out for this season and, and as well they should. And who knows, if they... if if they're in the race, I think by, you know, a couple weeks out with the, the season, you know, they won't be eliminated by the start of September. You know, if they at least have a puncher's chance to win the division, I think that's something that Orioles fans could certainly get behind and, and could rally around in terms of Baltimore. I, I like it a lot. And I mean, <laughs> look again, it's, it's a quick sprint this year, so you might as well have fun with it. Yeah, exactly. Well, Melanie, thanks so much for hopping on here on the Mass and All Access podcast. Before we let you go, where can fans watch The Grind and when? Of course. So The Grind is live. That's every Wednesday at 11 Eastern time on Orioles Instagram Live. Um, And then the cool thing is with technology, the shows are now being put through the Orioles YouTube channel. And if you go over to the Instagram TV tab under the Orioles account, you can find the older episodes there as well, of course, because you know, some people have to be at work and their bosses, for whatever reason, don't think that that's an integral part of their day. But we'll work on it. Yeah. yeah. At this point, look, a lot of people are working from home anyway, so they can get away with probably a lot more than they, they used to be able to. But Melanie, thanks so much for hopping on the Mass and All Access podcast. We'll be watching your shows and hopefully we'll hear you on some Mass and broadcast coming up soon. I can't wait to see you from a distance at the park. Yeah. <laughs> That's all we got for the Mass and All Access podcast today. Thanks, of course, to Brendan Mortensen, Bobby Blanco, Hannah Broder, and Melanie Newman for joining today's podcast. You can listen to the Mass and All Access podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, you can get the Mass and All Access podcast, which, of course, is brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. I'm Paul Mancano. We'll see you later.